Christ Church is that I can have a relationship with God that's very close and intimate. One of the seeds um, planted in me um, by Christ Church is um, compassion. Finding those who have a need that I or my community can fill, as well as um, challenge others to grow in their faith. You're involved with the church because you're growing in faith and you're learning how to spread the gospel and you're not coming um, perfect and being honest and honest about that. And that's just something that's so apparent um, with the students that attend Shake um, that we're just so blown away from and is so encouraging and so inspiring to see in them at such a young age. Christ Church, it's time to reach. Well, good morning and uh, happy Sunday and special greetings to those joining us at Crossroads Highland Park and the 01. So I, uh, <clears throat> I enjoy, love almost everything about India. Had a chance to go a couple times, not crazy about the jet lag or the trip over, but the people, the food, the smells, the, the, the opportunities, it's fascinating. What I don't like about India is the poverty. And uh, it's pretty significant. And if you uh, think much or disturbed often by Indian poverty, eventually you read about the little Albanian nun who made it her life's work to try and help the, the poor and the dying in Calcutta and around. So this is Mother Teresa. And um, I don't agree with everything that Mother Teresa said, but wow, am I impressed with what she did. And one of my favorite Mother Teresa stories is um, it was in Cal the streets of Calcutta, and there was a man that was dying, and everybody was walking past him, and she came up to him, and, and his disease was pretty awful, and he w looked bad, and he smelled bad, and it was gross. But he kneels down, and she, she, she kneels down, and she starts to take care of him. And uh, somebody is watching this, and they come up to her and they say, I'm impressed by what you're doing, but you got to know, I wouldn't do what you're doing for a million dollars. And she said, neither would I. Right? So <clears throat> the, the mission for the missionaries of charity is with Jesus, for Jesus, and to Jesus. So I think that the with and the for are pretty clear. The to Jesus is confusing until you remind yourself of Matthew 25, where Jesus says to two groups of people, one, he's saying, you are blessed, enter into my eternal rest, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, I was naked and you clothed me. And the others, he's saying, depart from me because I was hungry and you didn't feed me, I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. And both groups go, Lord Jesus, when did we see you in need? And he says, I say, if you saw the least of these, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. So we have been talking about what we're doing, and, and hopefully that's been, uh, that, that cadence of that has been drummed in. We're trying to multiply the impact of the church. We're trying to multiply communities of grace, hope, and love that are based on the life, teaching the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So locally, that's three more campuses. That's, that's more, more of the church's work to try and care for the poor. And it's trying to help other gospel-centered churches grow and thrive. And globally, it's, it's coming along our level one mission partners to help them launch churches that are going to be based on proclaiming the good news of eternal life through Christ and then helping and caring for others. So we've talked about what and we've talked about why. We've said we can't do everything, that doesn't work, we can't do everything, and so we are focusing on the church because this is God's plan and because it's got a proven track record and because the church is unique among agencies out there and that it combines the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And because when churches thrive, other institutions, families, marriages, businesses, the state, when the church thrives, then those organizations have got a much better chance. And when new churches start, we see people that are in the pews get into the game, and we see more evangelism happening. So we've, we've talked about the why. I want to talk about why at a deeper level. And we're going to go to Genesis 15 for this. So we have been looking at Abraham. and said, not a perfect guy, but an influential guy. He made an impact. How did he make an impact? What can we learn from Abraham? Why does he choose to trust why does he become generous? What, why does Abraham eventually develop a heart that is soft to God? I want a heart that is soft to God. What can we learn from Abraham? And so um, we're in Genesis 15. If you want to turn there, Genesis 11, I'll remind you, is the lights are going out, right? This is where we first meet Abraham, and it's, a, it's at a bad point. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3, 4 through 11 is, is, is a descending spiral of chaos, ugly and evil. Abraham's the last, the last halfway decent guy from the last halfway decent family. Abraham and Sarah are unable to have kids. It's, it's game over. That's the implication of Genesis 11. Then in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and things change. If I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to others. And so we see a pivot in Genesis 12. Genesis 13, we get a contrast between uh, Lot and Abraham. Lot is selfish. Abraham is other-centered. Lot has got a scarcity mindset. Abraham has an abundance mindset. Lot is sort of living for the moment. He, he chooses to go to the equivalent of Vegas. And Abraham uh, chooses to follow God. He's got an eternal perspective. And so that's Genesis 13. Genesis 14, we're skipping. It is a war. Uh, Abraham has to go rescue his nephew Lot. He goes to battle against four kings. So we're now picking up in Genesis 15, and in Genesis 15, something quite remarkable happens. Some would argue this is the most important chapter in the Old Testament. I, I'm not certain I'd go quite that far, but it's significant for something, a couple things that are quite unique. So uh, we begin reading, Abraham is scared because he's just been in battle, he's worried about a counterattack from these four kings, and God speaks to him. Verse 1, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. So the phrase, word of the Lord, is, is unique uh, here in the Pentateuch. So it's going it's to show up a lot among the prophets. But it only shows up here in the first five books of the Bible. And it, it suggests a particular deep communion. So the prophets are always saying, thus saith the Lord, a word of the Lord comes to the prophets. So Abraham is dialed in, the Lord is speaking to him, and he says, 
Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abraham is scared. He's worried about a counterattack from these four tribal chiefs. Probably not your fear this morning that four tribal chiefs are going to attack you. But fear is a big topic. Fear is a big issue for many people today, maybe for you. Uh, We are shaped by our fears. And it's worth understanding that uh, in one sense, faith is an antidote to fear, helps us face our fears, helps us understand things in light of a, a broader context. And the, the Bible has a lot to say about fear. Jesus' most common greeting to his friends is, fear not. <laughs> so that's how we say, hi, how are you, what's going on? He said, fear not, right? This is, fear was a big topic. So, um, Abraham, or God says to Abraham, don't be afraid. Uh, Abraham, I am your shield. I'm going to protect you. And I am your great reward. Okay, so Abraham wins God. He has been, he has been kind. God has been looking at Abraham's response in various capacities. And he says, Abraham, I, I am going to be your reward. Now, it's not that you know, Abraham wins God, owns God. I mean, obviously God owns Abraham. God owns everything. But as, as you might remember, the 17th century British, or 17th century, yeah, British, uh, I think, um, physicist and philosopher Blaise Pascal says there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. So we have a we have a hole in our life. It is a hole only God can fill. And God is saying, Abraham, I'm going to fill that, I'm going to fill that hole, right? You win me. I am your reward. Verse 2, but Abraham, but Abraham, so this is good news from God to Abraham. But Abraham said, well, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. According to the law of Hammurabi, which was the law, the code for that area at that time, if, if someone dies childless, then their estate, Abraham's a very wealthy man, their estate is going to go to their chief servant. And so Abraham is saying, well, God... Uh, so nice of you to make these promises, but you made a promise earlier and you haven't fulfilled it. So, um, I'm just not that impressed with these promises. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to Abraham. So God speaks again. This man, he's talking about Eliezer of Damascus, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. God loves adoption. Adoption is a big theme throughout the Bible. It is the metaphor for how we enter the family of God. God loves adoption, but he says, this is not going to be through adoption. You're going to have your own biological child. And then he took him outside, Abraham outside, and said, look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And then, key verse, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited, God credited it to him as righteousness. So this is, some would say, the most important verse in the most important chapter of the Old Testament. 
Uh, it is it is a important. It will prove to be a very important verse in the Reformation. It's a key passage. If all we had was Genesis, we would not understand that uh, that this is when Abraham actually comes to faith. But in Romans four and in Galatians three and in other passages, it makes it clear. Uh, excuse me, I would say if we did not have this, we would have thought that Abraham came to faith at Genesis 12. But Romans 4 and Galatians 3 makes it clear this is when he is reconciled to God. So in the Old Testament, people will sometimes ask me, so how do people in the Old Testament before Jesus came along, how are they saved? How are their sins forgiven? How are they reconciled with God? Well, it's the same way. We are saved by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And, and God works this all out. But here's the key thing, right? Abraham is not saved. He is not reconciled with God because of the things that he's doing. He is reconciled to God through faith. So I have, uh, uh, Monday's Wall Street Journal, and there was a fascinating article written by George W. Bush, so the younger president, 43, uh, about Billy Graham. It's called How Billy Graham Changed My Life. And he tells a story that in 1985, when he was 40 years old, <clears throat> that uh, Billy Graham came to visit his grandmother at Kenny Bunkport. They were at Kenny Bunkport, he came to visit his grandmother. And after Billy had spent some time with his grandmother, he and uh, George, Billy and George, took a walk. And during this walk, George Bush said, I'm going to uh, turn a corner. I'm going to improve my life. I'm going to stop drinking. George Bush is um, uh, sort of on record as saying that he had a drinking problem. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to read my Bible every day. And Billy said, well... You know what? Um, that is good news. Uh, we should strive to be better. But we are all sinners who earn God's love, not through our good deeds, but through his grace. And he said, it was that day that I first sort of began to dial in on the concept of salvation by grace, not by good works. Now he said, I still didn't fully get it. It took me another year before I was ready to make that decision. But he said, I finally understood. We are not saved because we're good people. God doesn't love us because we're good people. God doesn't love you because you're trying hard. God doesn't love you because you're at church. God's love for us is generated by God. It's God's character and God's nature. And he's not waiting for a better version of you, for a nicer, holier version of you before he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. We receive that love. So we are reconciled to God on the basis of the work of Christ. We are reconciled by grace through faith. So Abraham is reconciled with God because he believes, he trusts, he accepts God's love. So a question for you is, are you reconciled with God? <laughs> Have you received God's love? Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as 
righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So there's a good moment. God comes to Abraham initially and says, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to care for you. And Abraham says, well, I don't really like your promises because you haven't kept the one that I'm most interested in. And then God says, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm there. And they reconcile and Abraham believes and there's this transformative moment. And then <laughs> two verses later, verse 8, it says, but Abraham says, sovereign Lord, how can I know this? How can I know that I'm going to, to receive your promises? So doubt is back. Certitude lasts for Abraham about two verses. And now he's doubting again. So uh, I want to say just a little bit about doubt because I'm very sympathetic to people who struggle with doubt. Some people, faith comes easily to some people. It did not come easily to me. So I've shared that, 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 that there was a good year and a half where I was asking lots of questions, disturbed, couldn't walk away, but I couldn't commit. And I had lots of questions about Jesus and how this worked. And then at a certain point, I'm ready to commit, but I don't know how. <laughs> and I would, I would say to people, okay, so you're telling me I need to believe, but I don't. Like, how does this work? You're telling me I need to believe something, so I'm trying to believe, but I don't. I've got, I'm, I'm skeptical. So how does this work? So <clears throat> I, am, I am sympathetic to those who struggle with doubt. And I would say to you also, you know, so I, it's, not a, it's not a once and forever done thing. So faith isn't like an elevator that you get on the ground floor and you go all the way up to the top. It's a little bit more like a roller coaster, I think, that builds. So there's faith, there's some struggles, there's faith, there's struggles. Doubt can be an ongoing issue. But there's a few things I, I, I want you to understand. First of all, I think some level of doubt is inevitable. So Abraham has doubt. Abraham is celebrated for his faith. Abraham makes it into Hebrews 11, which is the, the hall of fame of faith. Abraham founds, in one sense, three faiths, right? Look at his Wikipedia entry. I mean, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all say he's, the, he's a father of the faith. Abraham is noted for his faith. Abraham struggles with doubt. So I think at one level, it's a little bit inevitable. Secondly, I think it's important that we understand the differences between different kinds of doubt. There's honest, sincere, and humble doubt that says, I don't understand, I'm trying to understand. That says, I don't, I don't expect that, that truth depends upon my ability to understand it. I'm willing to uh, acknowledge there's going to be some mysteries that God is God. He's, I'm not, I'm not going to understand everything. But I'm struggling with something and I'm setting it before God. There's, there's that kind of doubt. And then there's sort of an arrogant, uh, skeptical, lazy kind of doubt. And the third thing I would say is that I think we are responsible to manage our doubts, which means that we are, um, we, we can't run and hide from them. We can't let them overwhelm us. So in, in many conservative churches, doubt is a bad word. 
And if you doubt and if you ask hard questions, that's considered almost evil. In many liberal churches, doubt is celebrated, right? It's sort of a sign of sophistication and maturity. Yes, you have doubt. And, and I'm always frustrated. I'm frustrated with this because I went early on when I am in doing this, I, I was labeled as having a critical spirit because I kept asking hard questions. And I'm also, I'm also frustrated with this because I want to say to people who, who elevate doubt, like, <laughs> You realize the irony here, that you doubt everything except your doubt. Like, you're skeptical of everything except skepticism. Maybe you just can't, maybe you're just not strong enough to actually plant the flag and make a decision. Like, why are we going to celebrate indecision over here? So, so there's two ways that we do this wrong. I think we've got to navigate our doubts and, and not be scared of hard questions and go to the Lord and it's worth noting that here in Genesis 15, God responds very graciously to Abraham's doubt. <laughs> Two times he sort of says, in response to what seems to be wonderful blessings that God is offering Abraham, oh yeah, that's nice, but I don't really believe it. But verse 9, so God says, okay, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, and three uh, each three years old, along with the dove and a young pigeon. These are animals that will later be the animals that are part of the sacrificial system, developed under Moses when we get to the book of Exodus. So Abraham brought the, all these to them, and he cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So God does not tell Abraham what to do with, the, with these animals, but Abraham knows what to do with these. Abraham knows what's going on. Abraham knows what's going on. God knows what's going on. Everybody seems to know what's going on except us. So let me just say that uh, what's going on is that God says, in essence, okay, let's enter a contract. Uh, in, in an oral culture, they didn't have written contracts. We have lawyers. We have notary publics. We file things with the courts, and everything is about the written contract. And so if you're in a lawsuit, the, you know, the judge and the lawyers are looking at the contract. What does the contract say? You've got a written document. They didn't have written documents like we have written documents. And so they entered into a sort of a visual contract. And the visual contract was you took these animals, you cut them in half, you put halves on both sides, and then there's this, there's this little alleyway, and you walk through the middle together. And the, the, the statement is, if I don't keep this, my end of this deal, may I end up like one of these animals that's been cut in half, lying in a bloody heap, about to be food for the vultures. So it's a, it's a, <laughs> you know, it was a, it was a significant step to sort of walk the line between these, right? You were making uh, you were making this pledge. So um, today we would not say, "Bring me three animals, you know, and and some and some doves, and set them out." Today we would say, uh, "God would say, okay, Abraham, call your call your attorney, write the contract, give me something to sign." But um, this is the way it worked back then, and I, I was reflecting that perhaps it would work well today. You know, you're having problems with a. I don't know, a contractor or something, and you go to their house and you take three animals and you spread them out and you say, walk between these, maybe that would work. Likely they'd call the police, uh, but <clears throat> sounds a little bit like the Godfather, but uh, maybe it would work. So, verse 11. 
Abraham does this, and it says, birds of prey came down on the carcasses, so it suggests that there's a little bit of time lag here. Um, God is never late, but we're often impatient. The birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, the use of the word dreadful here in the Hebrew, it's sort of a, there's a little bit of a play on words. When it was getting dark, uh, a darkness set over him, a dread. Uh, so there, there's darkness, and then there's darkness within the darkness. And so this is not just a normal sleep. Uh, Abraham is, is uh, sort of in a deep, difficult moment. And then verse 13, the Lord says to him, and, and then God appears to him in a dream, and he makes a number of promises to him. about. He talks about what's going to happen. To, uh, to the Jews, he talks about their slavery in Egypt. He talks about liberating them. He talks about giving them the land. He talks about them. He talks all the way through all of this. And, uh, and then, verse 17, stay with me. It's been weird, but it's about to get good. Verse 17, when the sun had set, the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So Abraham has laid these things out. He's gone into a deep sort of trance. God has placed him in this. And then God is in the dream has spoken to him and said, I'm going to do all these things. And then this, this flaming fire pot goes through the line. And uh, it's, it's harder, I think, to, uh, to talk about this than it is to imagine it. So Every commentator that, that speaks about this passage says the language that's used here to describe this, this, this blazing fire pot is the same language that is used to describe God uh, at Mount Sinai when God is speaking to the people. It's the same language that is used to describe God when he's leading them through the desert, the Shekinah glory. It's the same language that's used to describe God when uh, there's a burning bush. It's the same language when God sends fire down. This is, there. we've got a theophany here. We've got a God sighting. He shows up uh, as a bolt of lightning that, that uh, talks to Abraham and it walks the line. <laughs> and there's two things that are really amazing about this. First of all, it's that God puts himself at risk. God sort of signs up. He walks through the bloody valley and he says, I am binding myself. So it, this is how contracts were made, but generally it was not how kings made contracts. The only time a king would actually walk the line with somebody else is if it was another king. Otherwise, the king would say, okay, here's the deal. Uh, you're going to do this and I'm going to do this. Now you walk the line because if you don't do your part, this is what's going to happen to you. If I don't keep my part, nothing's going to happen to me because I'm the king. So uh, I'm not going to walk the line. I'm not going to sign. I'm not binding myself. The only time kings would enter these contracts is if it was with another king. So God <laughs> enters this contract with Abraham. And it's, it's shocking. God says, you know, my reputation, my honor, my immortality, may it be mortal if I don't keep my promise to you. And the second thing that's remarkable at this passage is that Abraham not only doesn't walk the line, but he can't walk the line. 
It's as if God says, look, I got both sides of this deal. I'm for you. I'm putting myself out for you. Even if you don't put yourself out for me. And that's hardly the only time we see that in the Bible. Right? We were just in the Minor Prophets. And, and we've, got, we've got God presenting himself in the Minor Prophets as a, as a husband of an unfaithful wife who continues to be loving and thoughtful and kind and caring to this woman who is prostituting herself and shaming him. And God says, I'm like Hosea. And then we've got God as the prodigal, uh, God as the father of the prodigal son. The son shames the father, disgraces the father. But then when the son turns and is coming, the father who is watching runs to meet him and embrace him, right? <laughs> runs to meet him. In that culture, dignified men didn't run. And, and he has been shamed. And yet God says, that's what my heart is. I run to you when you turn back. And we can go on. It's, it's what we're going to go to with communion. We've got another example of God saying, I'm doing for you what I don't expect you to do for me. And that's, we're not going to look at Genesis 22 in this series, but, but it's a shocking passage, very frequently misunderstood. So Genesis 22 is where God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, take your son. So this is later on. Abraham now has a son, Isaac. And he says, take your son, your only son, the son that you love. Take Isaac, go to this mountain, tie him up on the altar and sacrifice him. And Abraham heads there. And you go, what kind of monster is God to expect a father to kill his son? Who could expect that of a father? Right? And, and it, of course, in Genesis 22, the angel stops Abraham. He doesn't, he doesn't sacrifice Isaac. But that passage doesn't make any sense until you realize 2,000 years later on that very same mountain that God had Abraham travel to, on that very same mountain, God ties up Jesus, his son, on an altar and he sacrifices him for you. Right? So, Throughout the book, we have God presenting himself as being for you, being for me, right? Saying, I'm going to do all of this. <laughs> and we don't earn this, we receive this. So why is Abraham eventually motivated to have a soft heart and to trust God? Because of who God is and what God has done for Abraham. So we're going to communion as we do that. Let me say that there's, I want to suggest there's two groups here today. Two challenges. You can pick your challenge. The challenge for one group is to be reconciled to God the first time. Right? To, to, have you placed your faith? Have you said, Lord, I am going to choose to follow. Help my unbelief. I'm not going to get a better offer than I get with Jesus. I'm going to choose to follow. Help my unbelief. There's this group, and then there's a group that says, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm choosing to follow. I need to not be a fan. I need to not be tepid about this. I need to lean in even further. I want to have a greater faith. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give those of you who do not know Christ as your Savior and you want to trust Christ— a chance to, to invite him into your life. And I'm going to pray for the rest of us that we learn to trust more, to move past our fears in, because of the character and the goodness of God.
Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us on the pages of Scripture, revealing yourself to us in in these profound ways that, that we can look at and study and reflect on your heart. Father, meet with us, all of us, here this morning. So now I want to say to those of you who do not know that you're reconciled to God, if you want to make that decision, that you pray something like this. Heavenly Father, I, I want to be forgiven. I want a Savior. I want to believe. I am, I am going to follow. I realize there's no one like Jesus. I'm not going to get an offer like this. I'm not going to know love like you love. And so I want to receive that. Help my unbelief even now. Meet with me. Forgive me of my sins. Lord Jesus, I want you to to be my master and guide, to be my Savior and Lord. And now I pray for those of us who have made that decision weeks ago, years ago. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that we can have a softer heart to you, that we can... We can hear your voice. We can be people of greater faith, greater service, greater love, greater others' focus. Spirit of God, fill, renew, recharge us, that you could use us to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.